Um, my name's Chris, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it is great to be able to address you guys this morning. Robert is um, at Capitol Hill Baptist. He's, um, if you know anything about D.C. or, or Capitol Hill Baptist, you know that's a really good thing. Um, fantastic church up there. He's, he's doing a week-long um, training up there with, the, with uh, Mark Dever and all those guys, and I'm actually little jealous, but not really, because I get to preach, <laughs> and he gets to listen to this on MP3. Um, so, we are in the middle, or actually, not in the middle, we've just begun our new series called In the City for the Nations, and it's, it's kind of a, a combination of things that we're after in this series that will probably last another four or five weeks. Um, we are tracking... Those of you who are interested in becoming members of Redemption Hill along with this series, it's, it's specifically designed to help you, uh, many of you that have been coming for a month, a week, two weeks, three weeks, even some of you nine months, um, and haven't had an opportunity to actually become a member here to actually join this, this local church family. Um, this series is designed to help you understand who we are, what is this thing called Redemption Hill? What's important to us? How do we tick? What is really going on in our heads? Um, and what, how do we fit into God's mission to the world? Um, and so we've identified um, three areas that we're going to talk about this week, next week, and the following week. Three identities that we want to explain that, that we are after becoming as we think about ourselves being in this city not just for ourselves, but for the sake of the city and for the nations. Um, first one, and this one we'll be talking about today, is a family. The church is a family. What does it mean for us to be a family in this city, in particularly Richmond? And how do we function? How do we relate to each other? Not as a group of people sitting in a building. How do we relate to each other? Not as independent, isolated believers, followers, or skeptics, or doubters, or Wherever we are, how, how do we relate to one another, not just as isolated entities, but actually as the Bible describes the church as a family? What on earth does that mean? We'll be talking about that today. And then next week we'll be talking about ambassadors. What does it mean for us to be an, an ambassador for God to this city? And then we'll be talking about what it means to be a servant. How do we, how do we exhibit servanthood in this city for the sake of the nations? So, that's what's coming up, and we're going to talk about family this morning. Um, as Robert said last week, it, it was really helpful to hear the, um, the, the kind of turn that we're making as we preach on, on, on Sundays. It's certainly, nothing, it's certainly not a departure, but, ever, but since the beginning of Redemption Hill, we have we've focused on the gospel, and we will always focus on the gospel. We will always think about what God has done for us in Christ. We will never ever stop talking about that. There's nothing else to talk about. Our application is shifting just a little bit because we've spent a long time applying the gospel to ourselves. How does the gospel create joy in our hearts? How does the gospel transform us? How does the gospel take what we have treasured out there? How does it remove that and cause us to treasure Christ in ways that we never have before? How is our joy accomplished in that? We've, we've talked about how the gospel achieves that for us almost on, a, on an individual level, and we needed to do that. 
And we will continue to come back to that over and over again. But another, and I would even say greater, application of what God has done for us in Christ is how it actually changes the way we relate to one another and how we relate to the world out there and how do we exist, not for ourselves, but actually for this city and for the sake of the world. The Gospel. We do not leave the good news of Jesus Christ to talk about now what we're going to go do. Personally, I've, I've, I've experienced these two polar extremes. And maybe you have as well. There, there, there tends to be two different ideas. There tends to be two different almost kinds of churches even. Those that focus almost exclusively on the promises of the Gospel or how it relates to us. There's very little conception, very little application to what that means for us as we live our lives, especially for those that are out there, especially for those that are hurting, especially those that are struggling, those that are not like us. We, there's churches that tend to, to look inward. And when I first became a Christian, I was a part of one of those churches. And I loved it. I loved every single minute of it. I was a wreck. And I'm still a wreck. But... I was even realized I was even more of a wreck then. And I, I literally soaked up the promises of the gospel in a local church here in Richmond, and it changed my life. I'll never forget, as a college student, sitting in a chair just like this. I had chairs just like this in another building somewhere else. And I sat there, and I heard the preaching on Sunday morning, and I literally could not get out of my chair. What was going on in my heart, the transformation in my heart, the the, the, the way that the realities of who God was for us in Christ and all that He had done for me was sinking in for the first time. And the reason why that was so powerful is because for the first part of my life before that, I was exposed to the other kind of church, which is the church that talks about doing, doing, doing. And, it, and we kind of separate what we're supposed to be doing in the world. We separate our mission from who God actually is. And we get so excited about what we're called to do. We get so excited about what's out there in this and the service we can do, and the things we can perform, and the, and the programs, and the practices, and the outreach, and we get all excited about that. But almost so much the fact that we leave the gospel behind, and we actually forget what we're talking about when we talk to people. So I've, I've experienced those two extremes, where, where churches tend to, to gather around one or the other. But the reality is there is no tension. There is no tension between the promises of the gospel and the obligations of the gospel serve and to love others. There is no tension there. You don't leave one to do the other. In fact, our there's no graduation. <laughs> the obligations of the gospel are happening in our life because of the promises of the gospel. We must never leave the promises <clears throat> in order to go do the obligations. But yet, we're going to talk this morning about what are some of the obligations, what are some of the applications of these promises? And how do they relate to us as a family in here? And how do they relate to how we relate to the world? The church as a family. You, you see throughout Scripture, God, God uses different words for the church. There's, there's, church. there's words like the body. There's words like the fellowship. There's like the called out ones. But one of the most intimate and one of the most particular phrases God used to describe the church is a family. Now, I think throughout antiquity and church history, I think people have taken this idea of family and, and, and tried to cram our concept of roles of mother, father, brother, sister, 
granddaughter, grandson. They try to cram the idea of those roles into what the Bible means about family. And it was never really intended to be thought of, okay, now who's the father? Is that, is that this person? Is that this pastor? Is he the father over these people? You know, it, it, was, it was never meant to be described in terms of roles. The reason why the term family is used is because it's the best way to explain the affection and the care and the relationships that we should have with one another. Not so much the roles and the duties, but the relationships that we have with one another. When we think about what the church is and our participation in the church, it is, it is, it is not a functional organization. It's not a, it's not a sterile club. We actually become family with one another. And it's a radical concept. We may have heard it a lot. It is such a radical concept, and we're going to get into why it is so radical. Um, the Bible is full of these, full of these one another's. You ever looked at all the different one another's that Paul talks about through all of his letters? How we should, you go to that slide, how we should do stuff like build up one another, care for one another, serve one another in love, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, comfort one another. There are literally, you could probably find 35 to 40 one another's in Scripture. Paul is continually, continually, when he wants to explain what impact the good news about Jesus should have on us, the first thing he thinks about in all of his letters is how does it change the way you and I relate to one another? It's the first application. It, it, it always is in, in his letters. Let me go to John 13 here. This is so helpful. Why is it that this idea of family is so important? Why is Paul always harping on this thing about how we treat one another? This is what Jesus said. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here it is. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, if, big if, if you love one another. It is. God has so worked it that people will understand that we belong to him. Yes, by our theology. Yes, by what we say. Yes, by how we live in isolation. But he is saying here, you know how people will really, the world will really get an idea that you belong to me if you love one another. Oh, I wish it was just theology. Oh my gosh. I wish it was just because of the number of books on my shelf. I wish it was just because of all the things I know about God or pretend to know or think I know. I wish it was about that. I wish that the glory of God in the earth didn't depend upon how I related to you or how I relate to my children or how I relate to my wife. I wish it didn't depend upon that. God has so worked it in His divine wisdom that it does. Look at 1 John 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this next phrase, it doesn't belong in this paragraph. 
it doesn't belong there. It's like it, it's 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 almost like he just inserts this thought in the middle of this litany of of why or how God has loved us and how we should love one another. But he inserts this: no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen Him. But if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. What is He saying? He's saying that the world will have no idea who God is. They have never seen Him. No one has ever seen Him in His being. But yet, if you and I love one another, He will abide with us. And what is implied here? People will see God. The one being that they cannot see in their natural eyes. They can look into the church And if you and I can actually embrace how much God has loved us, and we actually start to want love one another, people that are unlike each other, people that would normally hate each other, people that have different tax brackets, people that have different colors and generations and and different ages and different ways of life, things that we really should stop relationship if it doesn't stop relationship, if the way that we hurt and damage each other doesn't kill our relationships, but we actually in love are able to cover a multitude of sins and we can actually love one another in spite of how sinful we are toward one another, the world will see God. Yes, we're, it, is, it is for your joy. It is for your peace. It is for our enjoyment of God and one another. But look at this. God has so designed that when that happens, the world will see him. Jesus said, just remember when the disciples were saying, Lord, and it wasn't the disciples, it was either disciples or someone else that was coming up to Jesus. They said, Lord, just show us the Father. Show us the Father. And that'll be enough for us. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the same way, if you've seen the church, if we love one another, you will see God. Now, it's so tempting at this point to start telling stories about great examples of service and sacrifice and ways that people have gotten over things and, and love one another and laid down their lives. For it. I would love to just start telling story after story. The internet and books are full of them. I could read the Footprints poem, and you would cry, and, and, and the women would be always such a sweet man. The guys would just wonder, I'm a little strange. I mean, I could do that. I could do that. I could also, I could also continue to do what Robert did last week, was to detail the, the depth of need around us. Robert talked about the, 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 the families that, are, that are, live in devastation just a few miles from here. And we will continue to talk about specific, specific areas and specific needs and specific struggles that we have been called by God specifically and given grace by God to meet and to live in the midst of and to enter into, like Jesus entered into our mess, God is calling us to enter into the mess of others and to be an intercessor for them there. But it's not enough just to hear an example serving one another and loving one another. And it's not enough just to know what the needs are, even in here. And I, I, could, I could spend the next 45 minutes talking about the needs that are just right here. 
that we are called by God, by his grace, in his love, for his glory, to help me. But that will not cause us to meet those needs. There's a big problem with me. You may be like this. When it comes down to it, if I'm honest, when I hear about people's issues and struggles and the people that I'm called to love and I hear about things that are going on in my city that, that should bother me, they don't. The sad reality is that I really don't care. I really don't care about people. I really don't care. And I mean that in the most honest sense. I'm not saying that for a fact. I've, I've, as I have thought about this message and I've thought about my heart over the last few months, I, am, I shudder at my lack of sympathy and compassion for people. I am overwhelmed by concern and care for so many other things, but not for people around me. My concern is that I will hear a message or I hear ideas or I hear about people that are suffering and I'll be moved and I will be, be convicted, but then by Wednesday, Maybe by, I might make it to Thursday, at least by Friday. I've forgotten all about it. My concern also for me is a personal one in this. I've been in Richmond for 20 years. I'm staring at 40 years old, and it is haunting me. I'm staring at it. And I've been in the city since 1989 when I came as a freshman to the University of Richmond. I have a speech communications major. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. That usually works out well. Um, literally, I'm going to blink. I'm going to blink. And, I'm gonna, and I know, I, I, I can just see this happening. Another 20 years is going to go by. And I've lived in this city for 40 years. And the question that I'm asking myself, the question that I would ask our church, the question I would ask you, is, is this city any different because I've lived my life here? Honestly. I've been here 20 years. I have, I have started to raise five kids. I have gotten married. I have a beautiful, wonderful wife. I have a decent house. I, my kids are involved in sports. I have two cars. I have been going along this path. I've had a 10-year career in marketing. I, I have done so many things that I wanted to do. But honestly, I feel so often just like a sappy consumer. I feel like so often the, 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 most, the biggest impact I've had on this city is that I've paid taxes here and I've consumed its goods. And I am... I'm honestly taking a look at the fact, what is changing because I've lived? My hope for us is that we would look back in 20 years as a church and realize that we were in this city for more than just consuming its people and its goods for our own benefit. 
Now, what is really the problem? Let's, let's, let's keep going. <clears throat> Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, is trying to explain to this church why he does what he does. There's a, it, it's, it, it's almost laughable to hear him talk about himself this way, but he is explaining to the church, to, to the church in Corinth, why he lives his life the way he does. Listen to this resume really quick. It's not up here. It's just here. It says, it says, three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers and bandits and countrymen and dangers from the Gentiles and danger in the city and danger in the country. In danger at sea and danger from false brothers. How would you like seeing this as a status update on someone's Facebook page? I mean, you would... You would read it twice, wouldn't you? Um, I, have, <laughs> I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I have gone often without food. I have been cold and naked. Personally, I've never been any of those things. In public. <laughs> um, Now, he then explains why. Why on earth has he given himself to the church like this? Why on earth has he sacrificed like this? Why on earth does he do this to himself? And he wrote something here that has literally hunted me down for months. And honestly, I don't know whether it's, it's found me yet. Um, I, this is much less of a sermon and much more of a letting you know what's happening in my heart as I read these words. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. Ray used this for the call to worship today. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let this verse be a diagnostic to you this morning. He died that we should no longer live. The reason why I don't care about other people, really don't care, that my, my interest is not in them, it's because sin has caused me to shrink my life to the size of my own life. I live for myself. I am hopelessly in love with myself. Everything I do, feels like right now, is for me. Paul Tripp said this. I, I'm just going to read it to you. I tried to put it in my own words, but it's just so perfect the way it is. He says, Sin causes me to shrink my hopes, dreams, desires, and motivations to the claustrophobic confines and borders of my own life. Sin causes me to shrink my world to the confines of my wants, my needs, and my desires. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you feel the 
claustrophobic confines and borders of your self-interest. It's been suffocating me as I think about it. I've also got to read you this quote from Jonathan Edwards. I know it's tough sometimes to take a big waft of Jonathan Edwards this early in the morning, but, but I've paraphrased it just a little, all right? Excuse me, forgive me, Mr. Edwards, but I tried to help us get it. I'll, I'll, I'm going to read this. It is so helpful. It's going to come up here immediately. <clears throat> After sin entered the world, the mind of man shrank from its original greatness and expandedness. I mean, I mean, who uses the word expandedness anymore? Great word. And expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. Before sin, man's soul was under the government of divine love where it was enlarged to comprehend all of his fellow creatures and welfare. There were no limits to the exercise of man's holy love to God, and he was swallowed up in an infinite ocean of good. But as soon as he transgressed against God, he himself shrank into a little space circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of everything else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. God was forsaken, his fellow creatures forsaken, and man retired within himself and became totally governed by a narrow and selfish principle and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul, and the more noble spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. That's brutal. Boy, I can relate to that. This is how I, I read this. I was created, we were created to experience the fullness of God's love for us and have our interest so expand because of God's love for us that it would actually expand up to God and out to everyone else in the world. God's love was to so fill us and to so overwhelm us and to so be an ocean of good that we could literally hold the entire world's cares in our heart. That was the way God intended it to be. But yet, because of sin and the selfishness that is the very root of sin, we, our souls, our lives, our hearts have shrunk to the very small confines of what you need, of what you want, and what I dream about for me. We are hopelessly and helplessly turned in on ourselves. The worship and adoration and affection for the Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been replaced by another trinity called holy wants, holy needs, and holy desires. We are dominated and consumed by 24-7 selfishness. And there is no capacity for anything else. And this has shown up in my heart and my life in ways that I never thought possible. After, after doing something for someone else, I, I find myself thinking, gosh, I wonder if everyone really saw that. Well, I really hope that person appreciates what we did for them. 
You ever thought that yourself? Wow, I really hope this proves to whoever it is that I'm not as bad as they think I am. I mean, it's gotten to the point in my head where I actually hear those things sometimes. I mean, it used to be just a thought, but now it's almost like it's so evident in my heart and my mind that I almost hear myself asking you those questions. All the things that look like I'm doing for other people, all the ways that I serve and love and take care of my family, my kids, Many of you, if I'm really honest, it circles back on me. And I do not know what to do about it. I have an idea, and that's where we're going in here. But I want you to know that I don't have, I haven't come to this point of, I haven't not arrived somewhere that I'm trying to take you. I am telling you what is wrong with me, and I hope we can all see what's wrong with us. and We can all trust God to do something in our hearts that must be done. sin causes us to dehumanize people people become tools for us they become a means to an end they become either an obstacle or a vehicle for us to get what we really want for ourselves if we're honest I've got to be honest about something that's happened recently with me and, and some of my girls. I've coached them in soccer, Lauren, Abby, Mia. I've coached, they're all three playing right now, and I have coached them. I've had so much fun with them. Soccer's what I did. I want them to do it. And we've had so much fun doing it. It's been a great opportunity and an excellent thing for our family. But I realized something recently that absolutely shocked me. I... Um, as Lauren kind of went age and age and age and she went up team by team by team and, and, and there's this point in youth soccer where, where the kids really start to get evaluated about how good a player they are. And I've been looking at this, this point where my kids get evaluated by another coach and they get selected for a team or not. I've been looking at this thing like, wow, I can't wait to see what happens. You know, I can't wait to see how good of a coach dad was. You know, I can't wait to see what a great soccer player my kid might turn out to be. I, it's, and, and, and all the time in my head I'm going, gosh, I mean, I just want this for you. You know, I, I want you to have this. I want you to have the opportunities that I did to go travel and make friends and go to other cities and go to tournaments and, and all those things and to, and to be able to have this life. And, and, but the day started coming when I saw the coach start to, separate players into these two groups. And I could tell what was happening. There was, a, there was a group of girls that played at this level, and there were a group of girls that played at not that level. And, and I started, oh, wait a minute. One of my daughters is not in the, that group. She's in that group. And it was terrifying. I out of nowhere, started to get angry, frustrated. I started to get very critical. I started to get very down on her. I started to to not enjoy any of this anymore. I started to actually not look forward to it at all. Because what this is what was happening in my heart. I did not realize at the time. 
that I wasn't doing that for her. Her achievement out there and her doing well was for me. So I could be seen as a good dad. So I could be seen as someone who set their kid up well to go do and to go be and to go have fun. It was actually all about me. And my daughter became no longer a dear, sweet 10-year-old with hair and ponytails and laughter. She became a tool in my hand to get what I wanted. I know you're thinking, oh, call social services on this guy, right? I'm, I'm, just, I'm telling you the truth. And when I found out that she wasn't in this group, but she was in this group, I actually crawled up on the couch in the fetal position. And my wife came in the room and says, what on earth is wrong with you? And I realized that all these things that I thought I was doing for someone else that looked so great, oh, look, he's so involved, he cares, look how much time he's spending with this girl. Bull. I hope you get the point. We were meant to be shaped by two aspects of community. Two aspects. Vertically, to God, for God. We We have an intimate community with God because of all that God has done for us in Christ. But we have another community that's supposed to shape and direct us horizontally with each other. And sin, we see its effects as being one of the first things it is, is antisocial. Our selfishness because of sin actually ruins our community with God and our community with each other. And God, through the gospel, is not just about restoring us to God, but restoring you and I to where we actually care about one another for the sake of each other and not for what that does for us or not for what you can do for me or what I can do for you, but for actually what God can do among us for everyone. Let's look a little bit deeper in, in, into how this works. And, and as we think about how we serve and love one another, and we think about the city around us, there's so many things that we can talk about practically, about what to do and how to do, and, and how we can bear one of those burdens, and how we can serve one another. But, but none of that matters if we're not motivated by love to actually care for one another. None of that matters. You can detail it all day long and it won't matter. If we're still living for ourselves, nothing will ever change. Look at Colossians 3.12. I spent some time on this. And, and we, can, we, we can get a peek into Paul's heart, and Paul's way of thinking of how we can actually stop living for ourselves. How is it that we can actually start loving and serving and living the gospel with one another? Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The reality is, 
Look at the beginning of this verse. Is that it all begins with a compassionate heart. It all begins with the heart. This word heart it has become for us such a silly word. When we think of heart, we think of emotions. We think of feelings. We think of, we think of words like, bless his heart. When we really mean, he's an idiot. Right? The, word, the word heart has become so pathetic in the way that we use it. It's better translated here. Let me a little graphic for just a moment. It's better translated, bowels. A compassionate heart. Paul, the word that he's using here is really more to speak of bowels, of like something that comes from the deepest part of our being. Literally, from here. Something that is not just a flittering emotion or feeling, but something that actually comes from the deepest part of our identity. He says, we're supposed to be moved with compassion from our bowels. And this word compassion, it's actually two Greek words that mean this. An understanding sympathy with others that affects one's inmost being. An understanding sympathy. A heartfelt compassion and affection and emotion that comes from the deepest part of who we are. Now, let me show you how different it is from the way that we think. We typically think about loving one another. What we typically think in our heads is that we don't hate anybody right now. I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool with everyone. No one has a death warrant out for my arrest. No one has a, I'm not going to be arrested. I'm, no one's after me right now. No one is thinking bad thoughts about me right now. No one hates me, and I don't hate anybody else. I'm loving each other, we're loving, I'm good, we're cool. But this is not unity and harmony. This is just getting along. It's safe, it's secure, it is easy. But we mistakenly think that the opposite of love in this scenario is hate. The opposite of love is not hate, folks. The opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of this kind of love is not caring at all. The opposite of this kind of love is not pursuing other people. The opposite of love is not having a sincere, disinterested love for someone else. Think about this. Most couples, no matter how long they've been married, they get divorced. They get divorced. It's rarely because they hate each other. Rarely. Most oftentimes, because slowly, over time, other things have become so exciting and things have become so busy that they generally and slowly, their hearts grow cold. And they become indifferent toward each other. And they wake up one morning and they can't remember why on earth they're in this. And they go look for something that will once again capture their heart. It's indifferent. Now, here's where we have to be so careful when we look at this. Paul is not simply saying, okay, put on then compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience. 
He's not just saying, okay, let's stop thinking about ourselves and let's get on with the business of serving and loving one another. Let's, let's, let's get motivated to go serve and love one another. Let's, just, let's get dirty. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Like Nike. He's not saying that. He, puts some, he inserts some words here. There are some of the most powerful words in this passage. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. This, he gives us the power of the riches of the gospel to accomplish what he writes in compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, blah, 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 all the way down to love. He does not say, let's just go out and do it. He says, because you have been chosen, because you are holy, and because you are loved, this is what your life will do. Chosen ones, you know that prior, prior to you ever wanting or thinking or having any affection for God, that He actually decided that you were to be His. That in His infinite love and wisdom, before you had any chance to do anything right or wrong or even know about Him, He actually decided for you to belong to Him. You, we have been chosen. Paul is reminded you have been chosen. It is not because of anything you have done, not because of anything you can do. It is not how well you serve or love or anybody else on that list. It is because I chose you that you belong to me. He is reminding them that they don't exist because of the way that they have managed their life or the way that they do stuff or don't do stuff. It's because God has simply found them and called him, called us to be his. We really want to know what Paul's mind is on this. You have to go to the top of the chapter in Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Here it is. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Your life has been chosen by God. You're completely wrapped up. Not in who you are. Not in your desires, your needs, your motivations. But your life, the thing that makes you, you. The thing that we are all trying so hard to maintain and so hard to regulate and so hard to find in everything else so that our hearts are consumed with it. Paul says here, Christ is that life already. Your life is not defined by your grade, your degree, your schedule, your kids that make you look good in front of other people because they're so obedient. Oh my gosh, my daughter Lauren called me out on this the other day. She said, we were talking about something she had done wrong, and I was saying, hey, you, you know why Daddy wants you to behave this way, don't you? It, why, why is it? Because you want us to look good in front of other people. She called me out. And... Yeah, that was okay. Um, <laughs> she's sitting right there, so I, I won't go into any more detail. But your life does not consist in how smart you are or the grades you get or the fact that you're keeping your job or you're the best athlete. 
We're so consumed by our self-interest and maintaining our needs and our wants and desires. But here it says that Christ is that life. Christ is that life. His death is not the only thing that belongs to us. His life belongs to us. To live is Christ, Paul said. Romans 5 says, Having been reconciled by his blood, how much more are you now being saved by his life? Christ is living your life. You don't have to keep it. You don't have to maintain it. You don't have to be so absorbed by your own issues and needs and wants. Christ is our life. And it is hidden with Christ in God. That means nothing can take it away from you. Nothing can ruin it. You can't ruin it. Nothing can ruin what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus and has put our life in to save us. Nothing can take that away. And yet, day after day, week after week, God has done all this for us, and yet we still think about us. When Christ being our life is the very energy and capacity and the reason why we pursue everything, and therein is the capacity that we have to serve and love anybody else. But yet we're consumed by our desires. That's why we have to grab hold of this, that Christ actually is our life and He ever lives He ever lives to intercede for us, to be good for us, to be our righteousness, to be our credit before God, but yet we continue to try to build that up before God by how well we do what we do and how often we do what we do and how hard we work and by how much we put stock in those things attached to us. We're holy. We have been made holy by the righteous and perfect life of Christ. Therefore, we, can, we have no need to get on God's good side anymore. We've, he's made us holy. We have actually got Christ's perfect life. That means that we don't have to love each other. We can get on God's good side anymore. We don't, someone else doesn't have to be your tool, your, your vehicle, to get someone to love you, to, let, to get God to love you. God is actually thinking about you right now, and he thinks you're holy. Beloved. The best definition of love I've read as of late goes like this. Love. Willing sacrifice. Willing self-sacrifice that does not demand reciprocation or or that the person being loved is deserving. Say that again. This is biblical love. This is God's love. Willing self-sacrifice that does not demand reciprocation or that the person that you're loving deserves it. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that, that you have been loved like that. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. See, God, God loves us the way we are because of Christ and how much He's pleased with Him. He loves us in the state that we are, but we love, only love people as they should be. 
We love people if they are the way they should be. But God's love is different. He loves us in the way that we are right now. But our selfishness and our sin causes us to only love people if they're being the way they should. Hmm. Note this. Paul is not saying here that because it was the example of Christ's love, that we should now go try to love like He does. That's that. He's not saying, hey, God has loved you this much, therefore you should go love the same way. WWJD. What would Jesus do? Just go do it. Not what He's saying. He's saying, because God has loved you like this, it fills our hearts with the love of God. It so transforms us that we are filled to the fullness of God that we now are allowed to be spilled over by God onto other people. God, the very love that God has for us because of what Jesus has done for us spills over into other people. This is not something we go try to do. This is something that God transforms us in. Anybody feel exhausted? Besides Isaac? <laughs> Tired? Tired of maintaining your life? Tired of making your 24-7 job self-maintenance? When I talk about loving and serving one another, do you start to feel overwhelmed? Because you feel maxed out. Anybody got any spare time? I don't. I feel maxed out in my emotions. I feel maxed out in my energy. I feel maxed out in my money. I feel maxed out. If you're anything like me, when I talk now about, okay, we actually have to go do stuff, you feel overwhelmed. But I have no more capacity. I cannot do anything else I work from sunup to sundown. I am busy. I have so many plates spinning, I don't know how I could spin another one. Here's the thing. God has given us a new capacity to love in the Gospel. It's not an issue of time. It's not an issue of money. It's not an issue of energy. The reason that we feel maxed out, the reason that we feel overwhelmed, the reason why we feel burdened by the everyday duties of our self-absorbed life, and it's so small. Our lives are so small compared to the world. Your needs, your wants, my desires are so small, but yet they overwhelm us. It's not an issue of time, money, or finances. It's an issue of our hearts, and it's because we're living for ourselves. That's the good news is this. Christ has died. That we no longer have to live for ourselves. But for Him, who loved us, who gave Himself up for us, who died and rose again for us, what else do we need? What on earth are we spending so much time amassing for ourselves when God has chosen us, made us holy, and He loves us with an everlasting love that we don't deserve and He doesn't demand reciprocation for? 
What on earth are we working so hard to get? Why do we need to think about ourselves? Why are we so self-absorbed? We don't get it. I don't get it. Let me read this, this quote. A.W. Tozer. And then I'm going to pray, and then we will reflect on what we've been talking about, and then we'll take communion together. This is how it worked out for him. Let's go to this slide, slide before that. Faith is the least self-regarding of the virtues. It is by its very nature scarcely conscious of its own existence. Like the eye which sees everything in front of it and never sees itself. Faith is occupied with the object upon which it rests and pays no attention to itself at all. While we are looking at God, we do not see ourselves. What a blessed riddance. The man who has struggled to purify himself and has had nothing but repeated failures will experience real relief when he stops tinkering with his soul and looks away to the perfect one. While he looks at Christ, the very things he has so long been trying to do will be getting done within him. It will be God working in him to will and to do. Let's pray. God help us in this in this moment to be grateful for allowing us to see what is the real problem with us. And God, as we own that. God, I ask that as we reflect now and as we prepare our hearts to to take communion together, to, to share in the tangible presence of Christ among us, God, that we would drink to the bottom the riches and the wealth and the value of all that Christ has done for us. And we would be once again as you created us to be, consumed in an ocean of good from you. God, we're powerless to stop thinking about ourselves. God, you must open our eyes. You must give us faith. You must help us look to you to be all that we need, to be all that we've ever wanted, to be all that we've ever needed. God, help us. Give us Give us this faith, give us this sight that overwhelms our hearts once again and frees us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.